You're listening to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. We share uplifting and positive stories from people all over the world working to change our planet for the better. I'm Joy, and this week we head to the outskirts of Johannesburg to catch up with Danelle Murray, the co-founder of the Owl Rescue Center. Danelle, together with her husband, Brendan, are on a mission to save the owls of South Africa from extinction, as well as solve some pretty hairy plastic pollution problems. To get the lowdown on this inspirational team, stay tuned and, of course, check out our show notes at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Danelle, thank you so much for having us here at the Owl Rescue Center in Hardebeersport. We're so excited to be here. I've already told you that I've been following you guys for over a year now and the work you do is very inspiring. But before we get into all of that, can we go back to the beginning and find out more about you and where were you born and where did you grow up? Where did I grow up? In Joburg, um, but not like city Joburg. I grew up on a plot, which is um, the, the suburb is called Poetview, which is close to Rames. I know people don't know Poetview. Um, it's in Rudderford. So I've always had the benefit of being a little bit, you know, exposed to outdoors. So you are not completely a city girl, but come from Joburg. Okay. And so born here and grew up here and you also studied here. Is that right? Yes, I um, studied in Pretoria first, and then I did my my degree at UNISA. So then I got to study wherever, <laughs> wherever we travelled, wherever our journeys took us. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. And that was, but that was in psychology. That's right. Yes. Okay, yes. quite different to what you're doing quite now. Different, yes, although it does. People always say, you know, why psychology when you work in conservation? But it has helped me quite a bit. Um, like for example one of the techniques that we use with the owls is classical conditioning which is something that I've learned about in psychology you know making the owls used to a sound when we feed them instead of making them used to people so um, that has helped me to apply that knowledge onto what we do as a, as a research method um, and then also research as a whole you know in psychology they focus a lot about how to conduct proper research and that has helped me with the owls as well to put the research together that we need to for our projects and you know to successfully rehabilitate and release the owls. You were explaining classical conditioning before we hit record earlier. Can you explain how does that work exactly with the owls? Well it's um it's basically it was first done by uh, Pavlo who took a, a dog and he realized that if every time he feeds the dog, he blows a whistle, the dogs automatically started salivating afterwards when he heard the sound. So he started associating the sound with with food. So we do the same with the owls. When we feed them inside the enclosures, we feed them at the same time, blowing on a whistle, and they get used to, when they hear the whistle, food is supplied. So when we release them, when we want to help them with the adjustment back into the wild, we put the food out on the platforms now outside of the enclosure and use the same whistle to let them know that if they haven't found, you know, their own food, their own prey, they haven't hunted, they're struggling to hunt, there is food where they hear the whistle. So they'll come back to the feeding platforms and feed them. So you don't introduce that human element, they don't... Exactly, yes. You don't, you don't want to make them used to the fact that there's a person involved in the feeding because once you release them again, you don't want them to go to the nearest person if they're struggling to find food um, because that obviously puts them at great risk because you never know whose hands they end up in. So you associate the food with the sound, which causes no harm post-release. And so I'm really interested to know why owls? Why did you guys decide to conserve and protect these beautiful species? Well, you know, our, our love for animals was probably the starting point. And then Brendan's young interest in in birds of prey was like another factor. And then when you look at birds of prey, owls are the ones that require the most help. Two to three of the species are what we call urban raptors. So they occur literally where people are. They're attracted to urban areas. So, for example, your spotted eel owls and barn owls are... um, Barn owls are predominantly in in factories and things like that. So... being closer to people means being closer to danger. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's cars, there's electric fences, there's poisoning, there's persecution. You know, there's all those, those elements that count against them. Their numbers were just like plummeting. So we realized if we don't do something now, you'll soon sit with a crisis of, you know, a species going extinct. 
So it was a conscious decision. You looked at the array of species. You, as you said, you have a yes. passion for, for all animals and the environment. But really, owls was where there was a real problem occurring in terms of numbers. Mm. Yes. I mean, it, it was a conscious decision like that, but it also wasn't as cut dry. Um, there was an incident. We lived on a farm in um, the, the area is called Uri, Uri Game Reserve, and we picked up an injured owl. And Brendan, having experience in birds of prey, then, you know, took him to a bed. And just for the benefit of the listeners, sorry, yes. Danelle, Brendan yes. is your husband. That's who, right. Who is also, <laughs> and unfortunately he's not here today, yes. but he is also the founder of That's our right. rescue centre. That's right, yes. So he took, he took the spotted eagle out to the vet, and the vet said, the, the wing is too badly damaged. There's no way, you know, that this bird is going to recover. And Brennan said, well, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've, he's, he's done some research and he, he said, I think, you know, there is a possibility. Won't you try? Let's, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And the, the vet did the necessary um, surgery and we started taking care of the specific spotted eagle. And um, we actually got him, it was six months later, we got him to a stage where he was releasable. His wing completely healed. We took him for, at that stage, we didn't have, you know, all the aries and all that set up. So um, because he was an injured bird, um, the first while he was kept in a confined area so that there's no further damage done to the wing. But once it healed up, we then actually took him for like what we called flying lessons where we took him to a safe area, an uh, open field, and we would let him fly. And then he would stop and he would obviously not have the fitness level, so he would be completely fine. And we would take him back and put him in his enclosure again and take him up. And then next time we'll drive out to the same field and let him fly again until he built up his muscle strength and his his fitness level again. And then one day he flew off. Oh, amazing. And our job was done. And that's where we really decided, okay, it's ours. We're focusing on ours. Is that because of the satisfaction and that, like, you know, amazing feeling of, like, we did something good here? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the best, best part of the job is to, to see that owl, you know, getting a second leash on life, just yeah. being able to go back to where it belongs and, and carry on with life again. Can you tell me, Danelle, if you can recall your very first memory with an owl? My first, first memory was when I was eight years old. And that was on that same plot that I grew up on. Um, we had some barn owls that was breeding on the tiny. And I never realized them, well, never noticed them until one night. Um, and it was after a pretty traumatic event that happened in our family home. We had an armed robbery where four armed men came in and it um, basically, you know, um, yeah, it attacked my, my parents, but quite brutally. So it, it had quite a, a severe effect on on myself and my siblings. So we, after a month of not returning to the house, where my mom just couldn't face going back to the same scenario where this all happened, um, we, we returned then and I remember everything feeling strange and everything feeling like, you know, you feel completely disconnected to it. And my mom said, I must please go and feed the dog outside. And um, I was terrified. I was completely, you know, darkness itself was like petrifying. The, the minute the sun goes down, you know, everything just changes. And I went outside and um, I, was, I was standing there, you know, not, not really like paying attention, but, but just, just being completely overwhelmed with, with fear. And I heard a sound. And as I looked up, a barn I was sitting on top of my head. Well, not on top of my head, <laughs> above my head on the, on the water tower. Um, and he, he kind of just like turned his face and looked down at me. And I, you know, at that young age, being like, you know, all like mystical, believing in all kinds of stuff, I believe that he was there to look over me, you know. He was like an angel, like a guardian angel, making sure that, that nobody, because he was sitting high up, I, I believe that you could see that, that nobody gets anywhere near me. Um, yeah, and I kept that belief for a long time, and yeah, now now we are looking after them, so and I get to spend every day with them. Yeah, wow, that's yeah. very special. Eh? Yeah. And 
and you mentioned, you know, they've got these beautiful white faces heart that are heart-shaped, yes, yes. you know, that I imagine, yes. in, you know, at nighttime you would have looked up and seen this like, sort, sort of, of like a glowing angelic. face. Exactly, you're almost yeah. like, a, and, and it almost like resembles the, the image of an angel that you would think, you know, yeah. the white and the heart face and the, the softest. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's an amazing story. Well, I mean, you might not have been far off, you know, he might have been looking out Maybe, for you. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I mean, there's so many different beliefs about owls. A lot of them are bad, but in a lot of cultures, they do believe that owls um, carry our souls to the next life. That if somebody passes, then the owl comes and you know takes the soul and, and brings it to the next life. So, yeah, maybe maybe there is some truth in it, you know. Stranger things have happened. Yeah. <laughs> We're now sitting at the Owl Rescue Center. There's a beautiful sign when you drive in that says the Owl Sanctuary. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about this place, what you guys do here and how it works and what the sanctuary is specifically as well? Okay. Um, basically, the sanctuary is exactly that. It's a safe haven for owls. So um, all the well, not all the rescued owls, if they can't be released immediately, um, they come here and then we do the soft release process. We also do the rehabilitation. Um, so you know, everything happens here. And then um, if there's owls that cannot be released, they then become permanent residents here. So the idea when Brenda looked at buying a property was to have a place that will always belong to the owls, a place where they'll always be protected and looked after. And you know, as a non-profit, if Brendan and I for some reason decide we're going to go do something else now, maybe sail the world, become pirates, who knows, um, then this gets handed over to the next generation who will then look after the owls. Yeah, so that, that's the whole idea, that it will always be a sanctuary for them. Yeah, and I read on your website that there's, a, there's an educational element here at the sanctuary as well, that, that you guys spend a lot of time, you know, building awareness and... Mm. and making people understand a little bit more about the different owl species and other birds as well. Yes, it's obviously very important to always educate people about, you know, the role of owls in the in the environment. But education um, also in, in respect of how to look after them. We've got an internship program that, that we're very passionate about where we bring young people in because um, like I said, somebody has to take it over one day. So we want to make sure that generations after us will still carry that same passion and belief system that, you know, there's a need to, to look after them and make sure that they, they you know, keep on, um, their, their, their population keeps on flourishing. You know? So that's really interesting and something that I hadn't really clicked for me yet that you guys had spending that time, you know, like very consciously trying to build up the next generation of carers. Mm. Do you think that they are going to do the job? You know, like, is the next generation going to care enough to save the wildlife of the world? Well, that is actually a very, very scary thought because I think a lot of, of the youth don't grow up, you know, being exposed to the environment. And it's not, I mean, it's not their fault. The, the, the room for living in outdoor places like this. You mentioned that you grew up in charcoal, which was also, you know, plots and farms. But a lot of kids now grow up in complexes. Yeah. And it's also got to do, obviously, with the safety aspect of it. It's, it's not safe to live on a farm anymore. So many people live in estates and complexes, and that's where the kids grow up. So their interaction with the environment and wildlife is to an absolute minimum. Yeah. And a lot of kids spend all their time now playing video games and, you know, whatever they do on their on their tablets and iPhones and things, um, and there's no consideration for for things like you know um, protecting owls. Yeah. We I think our advantage as kids were we were sent outside and it was creative play. You know you were outside and you were climbing trees and um, you know you were you were building stuff with sticks and and you were always there. Um, outside, exposed to the birds that are around you, the insects, the the little things, you know, the butterflies, the, the everything that makes up the world. You know. Yeah, getting that appreciation. And you mentioned mm. before you were telling us about your kids and your daughter and her passion for the for the wildlife and how she brings you like butterflies to say to try and rehabilitate you. And even more than that, their diet. And you were saying, Danelle, they're vegetarian, right? And they won't even eat marshmallows or jelly because of the animal products in those. And it's all their own choice. And how it old was, are they? 
well, Spencer's 10 and Rebecca's 7, but they've been vegetarian now for two years. Oh strict, God. strict vegetarian now. So um, Spencer started, he was eight years old. And I actually remember the day when we realised, you know, because we always, when you've got a plate of food, it's always like the, the food groups, you know, there's the meat. And, the, and we realised that you keep pushing the, the meat aside. And then one day, why aren't you eating your meat? And he just, he just said, no, I, I love animals too much. I can't do it. And that was it. He made that decision. And since that day, they will not touch things that they loved before, like like jelly and biltong. They loved biltong. They used to fight over who gets the last bit of biltong. But when they actually made that, when he came to the realization that it might conflict with what his beliefs are, he just stopped right then and, then and there was no more meat. They are no such champions. Meat. Yeah, and then his sister followed within a month. She was also vegetarian. Jeez, wow. so they are proper animal yes, and warriors. Yeah, you know, they've got such discipline in it, you know. It's, and that's why I always believe that it's important to, your education has to be focused on kids. Yeah. Because if you can instill that habit in them, you know, we, we talked about the plastic recycling as well, our project recycling plastic. And we're always trying to approach schools in that. Because if you can make a habit, in, make it a habit for kids to recycle, by the time they get to adulthood, part of who they are, yeah. it's, it's ingrained in the whole makeup. So It's second nature. Exactly. Yeah. For adults to change their, their behaviors really difficult. And I should just say we are we're outside in the in the sanctuary, so we've got the dogs around us, so that's what that noise is. But I want to understand a little bit more about owls themselves and the problems that they face. I mean, we've touched on it already. There's there's all kinds of issues in South Africa for owls, and we've got all kinds of problems that they face. But what for you are the major things that owls face here in South Africa, and that you guys see? Like, what is the the major cause of disruption to their habitats? Well, basically, habitat, um, you know, losing habitat because of development is, is one thing. For each species, there's actually a different a different reason for concern. Um, so, for example, a marshal numbers are, are really at a, at a critical level. Although they're not listed as endangered yet, the numbers are really, you know, every year we realize that it's going down. And that's because of, um, they, they breed now during the winter time in South Africa and a lot of people burn their felt in winter. It's become like a, you know, like a habit for people to every winter they, they set their, their felt alight and these birds uh, breed on the ground in the felt during winter. So, you know, we're losing a lot of marshals. But in general, the biggest concerns for ours are road collisions, secondary poisoning, Rat poison. Rat poison. People using rat poison and right. then the owls eating the rats and getting the poison and like that. There's this owl-friendly rat poison, which is actually not, not owl-friendly. Right? So any rat poison you buy any rat poison, and you see it's yeah, owl-friendly, yeah. that is... I mean, the fact that it kills something can tell you really that it doesn't discriminate. It kills everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, what what they use clever advertising words to to make people believe that it's okay to use certain poisons. So they'll say it reduces the risk of secondary poisoning. So people yeah reduce and they go okay well there's there's no risk but you know it's not there's no risk it reduces because it's a multi feed so they reduce the the concentration of the of the chemicals so the rat has to feed on it a few times before it would kill the rat so they reckon that the low dosage then won't harm the owls but what we found there's these two things that that's important is that owls obviously being territorial and living in a very small area when they cover about two hectares when they're hunting and so they they live and hunt in that same area the whole life you know, so say for example there's a factory using poison that falls within that territory, they keep hunting from the same poisoned rats over and over and over. So that toxicity is still built up in their systems and eventually they do succumb from it. And there's also, some of our research indicates that it's not just the fact that they might die from it, but that it causes damage to things like liver and which could impair their hunting ability. And you know we, we see them then starving, for example, because they don't have they don't have the right energy level, or whatever, to hunt as they're supposed to. And so you yeah. guys have have tried to 
come up with a solution for that, right? You've created a, a rat trap? Yes, we did. We, we've got a catch and release trap. So we try and go around to all these organizations and try and convince them to use a trap instead of putting out poison, which benefits them because we remove the rats completely from the premises. But it benefits us as well because then we get those rats into food to our house. So it's like a win-win situation for everybody. And it's completely humane. The rat doesn't get harmed in the process. He walks through a trap door, which is basically a one-way door, and he simply can't get out again. Right. And then we go and fetch him. And then he becomes part of the, the circle part of, of life. Part of the cycle. Which is the way yeah. it was meant to be, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Instead of, I mean, dying poison, poison. Which, is, which is the most cruel, they literally bleed to death. It's ah. an antiagulant. So the, the blood can't clot. So they, they're bleeding through all the intestines Ugh. until they die. And the same happens to the house when they eat the rats. Is we see internal bleeding. Yeah, that's Gosh. awful. Hey? Mm. The circular economy in Africa, this rat trap is the, way, the way to go. To go. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. African version yeah. of the circular economy. <laughs> so, just to get back to your previous question, a very obviously unique thing, um, unique threat for owls in South Africa or Africa is persecution, is the superstition that surrounds owls. And that's twofold. The, the one is a belief that it's related to witchcraft. So they believe that if they see an owl, it must die because it's going to put evil spirits over them. And the other belief is it's used in the muti market. Mm. So body parts of the owls are consumed for spiritual, magical reasons. So Brennan actually has gone into muti markets and stolen live owls to, to wow. rescue them. So, you know, that's, that's, I don't think anywhere else in the world anybody has to face that kind of challenge of, you know, actually going into these markets and, and rescuing live animals from them. Now that you mention that, I remember last year seeing a post on your Facebook page. There was a picture of Brendan, I think, running towards the Land Rover with a cage under his arm. <laughs> and the caption was something to the effect of, just coming out of a Muti market yes. and two men yeah. are chasing us or something to that effect. Yeah. And it was just like... Yeah, it's literally a case of leaving the Land Rover running. You don't switch off the ignition because, you know, um, yeah, obviously, you know, going in there is it's very, very dangerous, very, very dangerous. You know, the minute they realize what you're up to, you're in big trouble. So what we've got is we've actually got spies that they they go to the Muti market to, to buy the herbal, so the the plant part of the of the medicinal products that's available and if there's any live animals like ours then you know they'll give us a heads up and you know we'll go in and our spy will distract and we will grab and run now and then he has to get out fast that, that, <laughs> that is like yeah. so james bond that's <laughs> that's so badass that, that is absolutely incredible i don't know if there's anybody else in the world that would go to those lengths mm. you guys are truly passionate and that either that or a bit crazy <laughs> <laughs> i think you need crazy people to be actually yeah. making change in yeah. this world that's really that cool. is amazing gosh he must have some crazy stories <laughs> yeah. so tell us about the process once you get an owl what happens once you get, say, like a baby owl or a rescued owl, what, what's the next step? Okay, so the first step um, is to attain the history of the owl. So um, to make sure, for example, from whoever got the owl, what is the situation? You know, where was the owl found? Um, if it's found, for example, next to a road, you know that you're now dealing with a vehicle collision. Um, if it's a baby found in a garden, you know that you should check for things like dehydration and, and stuff like that. So the history just gives you a general idea of, you know, what could be the possible treatment. And then from there, we take the house to the clinic and they get a thorough, you know, examination done. So we check everything, we check the wings, we check the claws, we check the eyes, um, you know, we weigh them, make sure. And then from there, treatment is then administered if necessary. Um, and then once the treatment is done and they, they're in good health again, then they go into our aviaries. Where they then get to, you know, build up their fitness level, build up their, their muscle strength, get used to the environment around them, pre-release, and then from there they're released. Wow. And so you, um, you showed us the aviaries before and it was cool to see that there's like a, 
trap door thing that the, so the they hatch can, is. Yeah, the yes. hatch, right. So mm. they can they can come and go as they please until they're that's comfortable. That's right, yes. yes. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And that's where you have the food, like we were talking about before, the classical conditioning and all that. That's you, right, you yes. can wean them off. Mm. And then all over the sanctuary we've got feeding <coughs> platforms where they can return to for support feeding. You guys, and we've alluded to this already, you're not just interested in owls, you care about nature in general and you've got some really exciting initiatives on the go here at the owl rescue center and we've also alluded to a couple of them can you expand on that and just tell us a little bit more about those initiatives well the plastic recycling is a new project for us we started about three months ago we used to make all our conservation products like our owl houses and bat houses and stuff out of wood and then we were looking up at you know the the big crisis with plastic being everywhere and we thought you know what can we do to make a difference and the first thing that we all did is we said okay we're not using straws and you know you're gonna stop any plastic use that that's unnecessary but we wanted to do a little bit more so we looked into methods of using recycled plastic in our products and um, we got it set up now so that we can manufacture all those products our houses pet houses and BRs from from the plastic that people create literally in their homes so you know milk bottles all that is turned into an hours now i mean yeah. that is just brilliant <laughs> you're, you're taking not... it into your own hands like the actual recycling process into your own hands yeah well what the really cool thing about it is that you're taking something that's negative to the environment and you're turning it into something that's positive for the environment because now you've got an hours that helps with the population of owls or a bat house that protects bats so you're taking a negative element turning it into a positive element. So that's the message that we're trying to get across and get people excited and inspired to actually join us and help us. And, you know, we can't do it alone. Obviously, you know, we, we need the support of everybody out there in order to, to make this project any success. Yeah. Absolutely. But I love the fact that there's two parts to it. You're not only providing a home for a species that is in need of homes, as well as beehives, because we were talking about that earlier as well, yes. and bees are in decline, and bats, I'm sure, as well. But you're also taking waste that is filling yes. up the oceans and polluting the earth. Again, we were interested to ask you, you know, you, we're so far away from the ocean. Yes. Why, <laughs> why, why this? I mean, it's just, it, it seems random, but obviously yes. there's a huge motivation behind it for you. Well, like you said, you know, our passion does not stop with ours. It, it extends to all living creatures and to the environment. And when we actually realized the effect that plastic has on, for example, marine life, you know, the plastic breaks down into small little bits that floats in the seawater. And that is consumed by sea turtles and whales and, and fish. And it actually ends up inside the system and it's, it's killing them. It's, it's killing a huge amount of marine life. And, you know, it's actually unknown how long it's going to be before there's nothing left in the ocean, you know. So I think it's quite a drastic thing that, that needs, to be, needs to be addressed. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and I mean, you know, people always think it's in the ocean, it doesn't affect you, but it does because the fish that consumes the plastic ends up on your dinner plate so you're actually consuming that plastic as well believe it or not so you know if you think it doesn't affect you it does everything is interdependent you know everything there's a full circle everything comes back yeah yeah, yeah. and it's really it's got to that stage where the problem is on our doorstep that's it, yeah. and um, we have to start doing something about it plastic waste creation is just growing every year more and more products come out that make use of, of plastic. I read a while ago those coffee um, capsules mm. that, that people make. Nes, the Nespresso. Nespresso. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, there was actually an article saying the person who invented it actually had great regret because they didn't realize the plastic waste that that in itself is causing. Yeah, every time you make um, a coffee, you're creating a you're little creating piece of plastic piece that's going to go into yeah. the whale's stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And every year, like I said, new products come on the market and it's all in plastic. And I think our whole project is quite an eye-opener for a lot of people because when you've got one of our plastic recycling bags at your house now and you're starting to put all your plastic waste in there, then you really realize, you know, how much waste you are creating. Your butter tubs, your um, detergent bottles, your milk bottles, your cauldron bottles, everything, everything, everything is plastic. 
And if you don't use that product by recycling it, where does it end up? It ends up somewhere in the landfill or and eventually in the sea. I just want to, I just want to like drive the point home here that you guys have actually created your own recycling process. You have, you offer the service where you'll take a giant plastic collection bag to somebody's house, just to like an ordinary house, and that family or the people who live there can put the plastic in that bag, and you guys will go and pick it up, and you'll bring it back here to the plastic processing plant we've just seen <laughs> the miniature processing plant yes. and you will turn it into little granules and then you'll turn it into like even smaller little pieces that you can then melt down and make into something new out of it and you do that here on your property that's right yeah. you don't need a big manufacturing facility to do things like this and you don't need like huge amounts of infrastructure to make a change like this you guys have just gone and done it it's yeah it's kind of crazy you guys are kind of crazy. Our, our first experiment <laughs> actually started with using an oven to melt it. You know, just an, oven. an oven, and and it, it worked. It did. Um, and then obviously from there we realized, okay, no, if we're going to do this, we have to do it properly. So we got all the all the equipment, which was money that we had available from the previous fundraiser. So we got everything in place and it took a lot of you know experimenting with molds and so there was a long learning process but uh, you know we've got it we've got it done now so and i think our hours look pretty cool yeah, <laughs> in the super. different colors i love it they <laughs> are super. i love the colors and i think it looks like art with each of them which is so nice yeah. i read the goal is to recycle how many tons Six hundred tons, tons a, year. Yes. a year of plastic yeah. And you're not getting enough plastic to get there yet. You need not more plastic. To reach that goal, yeah. Yeah. And it's like it's such an obvious thing, isn't it? It's like we're gonna come take your plastic away from you. Mm. But you'll be amazed how people are set in their ways. You know, to to do that bit, little bit of extra for a lot of people is a lot of effort. We ask obviously that people rinse the plastic and squash it just for practicality, rinsing it. You know, for the the hygiene side of things and then squashing it for the transport and you know a lot of people just say well then it's too much effort now you know so and it's so easy like it's just a habit to just yeah, do it's, those it's things a habit, yeah. Yeah. but that's why i said earlier that focusing on kids because that's that's your starting point. Mm -hmm. kids can still change habits fairly easy and so you guys are taking these operations off site and <laughs> this is I mean, it's one thing to be in our rescue center and then, you know, start a, a recycling plant on your premises, not knowing anything about it. But now you're fundraising for a boat. <laughs> Tell us about the boat. Not a boat, boat. a ship. A ship, sorry. Not even a boat, a ship. A ship, yes. Tell us about the ship. Well, you know, things kind of just develop that way. <laughs> yeah, why not? You know? <laughs> like, uh, you know, we started with the owls and then they, we put up owl houses. So that's where you know they're all recycling of you can create allowances um but yeah the, the ship is to get the huge amounts of plastic there's actually islands of plastic in the ocean at the moment and to try and get that out so um the ship would have a conveyor that dips into the sea and that conveyor well, just runs and you would you would have volunteers sitting there just you know sorting and making sure that obviously there's no marine life that, that comes up onto the boat as well so um and then that gets put onto onto the ship and you know stored and granulated all that and then brought back to to manufacture more houses and, and whatever your yeah, conservation products we can come up with in the future that you're taking it out of the ocean that is yeah. fantastic because i mean yeah as you said the reserves of plastic in the ocean is endless so that's yeah. um, that's yeah, the best shocking. place to There's start actually countries that that feel nothing to just dump all their plastic waste into the ocean just like out of sight out of mind kind of thing mm. and um yeah suddenly with a with a big shock everybody realized what we're doing do you know what's amazing about this is like is i've heard about these islands we, we've all heard about these islands you know yes. gyrus, because of yeah. because of Blue Planet 2 and everything, there's been yes. a lot of awareness coming up about it. So anybody who's remotely interested in like the future of the planet and like oxygen and you know that sort of thing will care about this and will yes. look out there and say, you know what, somebody should do something about that plastic in the ocean. And you guys go, we're going to buy a ship and we're going to go take the plastic out of the ocean. <laughs> and you're actually doing it, which is just amazing. Well, basically our motto is if you're going to keep 
thinking that somebody else is going to do it, then it's never going to get done. So what we can do, we're going to do. We're going to take on. We try and develop and grow all the time. It's, it's, just, it's just, I suppose, our personalities, we, we, we get bored, so we, we come up with new stuff to do. <laughs> so what, what needs to happen, Danelle? I know you've got plans in place to mm. get to the point where you set sail, but what needs to happen to get to that point? Okay, well, we have looked at ships already. So we found one that that is pretty like perfect for, for what we need. It's the right size, it can accommodate the right amount of people, it can be altered to have that conveyor belted up into the sea. It's got all that. Um, so now it's the fundraising part. And then once that is done, getting a crew and getting volunteers and then we're off. And so then, yeah. I love that attitude. Mm. And what's, what's the timeline? What are the goals? Well, what we actually did is we did a social experiment on um, Facebook, which is still running, well, on social media as general. And we said, okay, we're not going to ask anybody for a donation right now. All we want is basically a pledge to say that if we get, because we worked out if we get 150,000 people to all give 50 rand. Which we, is less than $5. We would basically have enough money to buy the ship. 50 rand, you know, like you said, for a lot of people, it's not going to break the camel's back. You know, most people can afford it. So, but don't give it now. Give it on the 31st of July. So all you have to do now is pledge that if we get 150,000 people to all say, yes, we'll do it, that on that day, everybody pays it and you've, you've got the ship. So it's, it's obviously like a bit of a dream, but we wanted to see how our dedicated people will be to, to join us and to be willing to, to contribute to this dream that we have. We'll put the, the link in our description. And we pledge. <laughs> yeah, we each pledge. We absolutely pledge. <laughs> we, we haven't yet, right. but we are, we are yeah. doing that yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Plus entering into the, the next Mustang. Yes. For sure. Obviously, <laughs> that funds also go to towards the ship. All that funds that that's going to be raised is going to go towards the ship. Yeah. yeah awesome. Great. Awesome. Very cool. Before we get stuck into, because I think we want to really talk about in a lot of detail how people can help support. But let's um, I, just before we do that, I want to talk about your book. Along with all this other stuff, you've also written a book, which yes. is amazing. So you're a published author. Tell us about the book. The book is basically, you know, our life story in a nutshell. It is um, everything from my first encounter with ours, which I discussed earlier, until Bryn and I met and, you know, we shared this big passion and, you know, turned it into an organization. But also all the challenges that we faced on the way um, and the unique challenges we faced being, you know, conservations in South Africa. Like earlier I said, more and more people are moving into a state and, you know, smaller places where they can put up our fences and, and security gates and alarm systems. We're working with ours. We don't have that option. We have to be out here where we can do what we do. So it's been a bit of a challenge and, you know, we've, we've gone through some experiences, but you know, we, we're carrying on and we're keeping strong and, you know, this is, you know, nothing's going to stop us to do what we do. Yeah. And I don't want to give too much away because people should go and buy the book and read it because these experiences <laughs> are pretty amazing. But they are like not just, you know, you, you make it sound like we've been through some experience. <laughs> you know, they are, these are like very serious, very hardcore mm. experiences that you guys have been through. Like this is no joke, living in Africa and being conservationists here is like, mm. it's not like trying to save a butterfly in England, you know. No, <laughs> This no. is the real thing and it's, it's really, you know, you guys have really suffered being here. Um, mm. So I, w I want people to, to be clear that this is something that they should aware of yeah obviously your social environment plays a role in everything yeah so. but on a happy oh wait firstly what is it called what is it called? Oh, it's, called, <laughs> it's called my dark country which is a play on the fact that owls live at night and you know our whole lives are basically a lot of our work that we do is nighttime work but then it also discusses my fears of that same darkness of that same night nighttime atmosphere you know, it's funny, like, I remember growing up in Joburg, um, Abner Plot as well, close to here, 
and darkness was scary. I remember mm. that being, you know, probably unusually so for a kid that the darkness was so scary and like mm. your heart beating. I remember like walking in from the car and your heart being like, you know, it's dark yes, and you yes. don't know what's behind every corner. Yes. And it's, yeah, so it's a great name, great name for a book. Um, on a happy note, yes. we often like to ask our interviewees about their favorites or most memorable moments in nature you know something that comes to mind is like wow that moment was like a really incredible experience and you've already shared an amazing one with the owl <laughs> but i wonder if there's any other stories that jump to mind of incredible experiences that you've had in nature and the wild here in on the sanctuary or anywhere else in africa or anywhere else in the world for that matter well i think you know um living so much with with owls it's, it's always going to come back to the owls <laughs> because you know it's it's such a big part of our life it, it incorporates almost you know we're always out in the in the wild and but i think when it comes to memorable it goes back to the owls and at our at our previous um where we had our, our first you know our rescue center set up um we lived in a an old farmhouse on the XK River and it was a, a double story house that had an attic at the top. So when the baby barnals came in during winter season, the aries that was along the river was just too cold to have them there. So we reared them in our attic <laughs> of the house. So that's where all the baby barnals would be and they would get fed. And then we just basically open up the windows from there and they could come and go as they please. So as they developed, they would just, you know, fly out and come back and, and that was kind of like their spot. But this one barn owl in particular, now it's important to say that we never ever try to to imprint on an owl or to tame an owl. It's very important for us that we don't. But this owl just had a mind of his own. <laughs> so what he used to do is at the top, the, the the lounge would have stairs that goes up into the attic and he used to sit at the top of the stairs looking down when we watched TV. You know, he would just like curiously come and sit there and watch. And then as the days and, and weeks passed, he would become even more curious. So now he would fly down and come and sit on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> and then he became so like... He just decided he's part of this family now that if I was cooking, he would fly in and come and look into the pots. <laughs> and, you know, he would he would fly to, to the bedroom and he, he then ended up sleeping on the curtain rail in, in our bedroom, just sitting there. And it was all by his own choice. <laughs> and it was actually, you know, he became so, like, almost affectionate of the family that when you drive in, you would like open the door and then you hear that tick, 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 at the bottom, at the, at the, you know, in the attic because he would spend his time in the attic. And then as you open the door, he would come flying in to come and say hello. So, wow. you know, it was just amazing to have that kind of bond with a completely wild animal, you know, that, you know, on his own decided that, you know, that you're his family now. That, yeah. Yes. And, um, as he then matured and he became like, they go into that stage where they then become broody, they, they want to breed. That's when he then moved up. So started visiting this frequent and then he paired up with, with another owl. And then, oh, nice. So, yeah. Because I can imagine like <laughs> when he started doing that and you guys are so dedicated to your release aspect of your program that yes. you would be like, you're a wild owl. Like, <laughs> come on. Like, Move along, buddy. Yeah. yeah, but fortunately they do reach, you know, if you don't, even, he wasn't an imprinted owl. He was just, he was, I suppose, just accustomed to us. Yeah. So what is the imprinting risk? You don't want to let them get to attach to you too young. Is that? You know, if an owl is like tiny, tiny, and, and you spend too much time with it, he actually believes that he's human. He, he doesn't associate with his own species. So when we get in baby owls, it's very important that you either put them with other species, like the barn owls, you know, have a few together so that they see each other, so that they don't just associate with a person because then they actually don't associate with their own species. In any way. Wow. So there is that, that risk, although it's not very common in owls. Right. So that is something, for, if anybody finds an owl, they should not try and raise it themselves and keep it. It's better that they... You no, know, there's many reasons why people shouldn't try and raise. And the biggest thing... Um, I think I did explain that it was maybe off camera <laughs> that if people give owls the wrong diet, there's so many like metabolic bone disorder that can occur, and it literally it it makes the bones brittle, it makes the bones def 
deformed. Yeah, there's there's many reasons why people shouldn't try and do this on their own because no yeah. yeah, they're not pets. They're not pets. No, they need a very specific diet. They need very specific care. It's something that we also love to ask our interviewees. Lots of action up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a bit of a dog party going on. <laughs> I mean, you guys spend a lot of time, in fact, all your time in nature and the environment, protecting and conserving it. From your experience, have you got any key lessons learnt or advice for the listeners out there who want to live a more purposeful life? I think the most important thing is not to miss the little things. Like you asked me earlier, why else? And you know, a lot of focus is given to bigger animals like rhinos and wild dogs and cheetahs and that. But we have to think of everything, you know, every little creature because every little creature has got its role. So yeah, to to start appreciating little things around you because they're all they built are, up. They all build up. They all form part of your of part the of the ecosystem. Ecosystem. Yeah. As do we, right? Like I was That's interested right, in your perspective earlier. What you were saying about um, you know, like we all are part of the same ecosystem and if we let one little thing drop then we're all in trouble it affects us. Yeah. and we are actually on that point we mentioned that disgusting statistic of how our planet is is made up currently of animals versus wild animals versus humans and i think the mm. stat you said joy was yeah, like i mean three percent of wild animals left uh, yeah we should validate that, that but yes. it's something scary anyway and looking after the smaller yeah. animals they probably make up the very small percent so. mm. like if you take for example bees if you take bees out of the equation we literally have you know a short period of time before we all die because that's how important they roll in. i know countries like japan is already doing the the whole pollination thing manually because there's no bees left Really? I didn't know that. Mm. They, they actually, they, they started using drones now to do it. But before, well, in parts, there's still physical people sitting and, you know, with a little brush and painting every, <laughs> pollinating every little flower I mean, to, that's to produce fruits and things. Gosh, yeah. alarm bells. <laughs> no, that, exactly. That is yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah, I saw um, Walmart's just... Just patented robot bees. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that for pollination? Or? I think yeah. so. It's a scary thought. Do you think that, you know, you now want to take technology to try and compensate for the damage we've done? Yeah. 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 How about let's invest in saving? No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think so many people just indiscriminately just, just kill whatever's a inconvenience for them. Yeah. Even like spiders and they all have a... People used to come here and, and complain about the spiders, but the spiders eat the other insects, you know, they eat mosquitoes. They eat the mosquitoes that we know? hate. Yeah. The same as, as bats that people used to people used to hate bats, but fortunately they're realizing now that bats control once again mosquitoes. So yeah. in a lot of um, and the countries where there's yeah. you know where there's malaria as a big epidemic, they're using bats now to combat that epidemic. Really? You know? So we actually, fortunately, it looks like you know people are realizing and we're moving back to nature, but not enough people. You know? And it comes back to your point about educating kids and getting it's them okay. connected to nature. Yes. I'm the more and more I speak to people like you <laughs> who are amazing and doing this work the more I'm convinced that kids need to be connected to nature and that's the answer. Mm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. For the long-term success of the planet, absolutely. Yeah. So, Danelle, where can people find you and how can they support you? How can they support the work that you guys do, not only at the Our Rescue Centre, but the plastic recycling mm. and also the ship? And the book. And the book. <laughs> Sorry, we can take that in stages. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, everything is on our website. Um, our website is ourriskcenter.org.za. And all the information is there about all our projects that we're busy with. So people can just decide which project they want to support, whether it's putting up an eyelash or using a rat trap instead of poison um, or contributing to the plastic drive or the ship or fundraising it's it's all up there. We also, you know, we have some merchandise that we that we sell. So every little bit helps. You know, wherever you feel you want to support. Um, but like I said, all the information is on our website, and the book is also available directly from us through the website or on Amazon worldwide. And you guys are on Facebook. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. What are your handles? We'll also put that in the description. So on Facebook, you just our rescue our rescue center. center. Twitter is at our rescue, and Instagram is always the center. Excellent. And you can also buy merchandise. Your 
jerseys and yes, other yes, cool yes. stuff. I don't know if we really got the point home that you can buy the owl houses, right? The ones that you make out of plastic. That's right, yes. You, can, you sell yes. them on your website. Yeah, that's, that's the idea, is that people then purchase the products that we make to, to keep this whole project, you know, the circle of it going. Yeah. Obviously, we need people to purchase those products. Yeah, and they and they provide a habitat for the owls. Like that's, that's right, the yes. other side of yeah. it, right? Yeah. It's the habitat, and you know, once again, awareness. Yeah. I always explain to people when you put up an owl in your garden, and your neighbour sees the owls, they realise that we share our habitat with owls. So it just changes their behaviour a little bit. You know, they they think twice before putting up poison and things like mm. that when they realise. But hang on, you know, we're not alone here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the owl houses, would you put one up if there was an owl hanging around or would you just put one up and hope that something would move in? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, we actually do put them up um, all over the country right. because the species that they are designed for do occur all over the country. Right. And they, the territories are relatively small. Okay. So you'll let, literally have a pair in every two hectares of you know, if, if the population is doing well, you, you can have a pair every two hectares. Wow, yeah. so it's really important to get as many of these mm. these houses up around the country. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And because there's so much counting against them, getting them to breathe safely is obviously a very important, important thing to do. Yeah, and the houses provide that protection. That's it. Yes. Yeah, oh, cool. Danielle, thank you so much for chatting to Joy and I. We thoroughly appreciate this. And thanks so much for showing us around our rescue yeah, centre. Thanks for you guys to come out all the way here. I know, it's like, I know you got lost. And, it was such a treat. It's, yeah. it's such an awesome place but to come visit. But it's been visit. fun. Yeah. It's been really yeah, it's fun. Been fun. Oh, the other thing we didn't mention was that people can come visit on a Saturday night, right? And, and, yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, we always want the, the public to, to realise what, what it's all about. So, And I think there's nothing better to see a wild animal in its natural environment. So we're not open as a zoo where you can come and see them in enclosures. We don't allow people during the day at all unless you want to come and buy an owls, but not to see owls. Um, but on a Saturday night, you're welcome to come and sit and quietly observe them at the feeding platforms where there's no interference to them. So a photographer's dream. Oh, yes, and birders. And obviously an owl is difficult not on, easy the, to on spot. the scale of your... Yeah of things to see because obviously they have not so yeah and and the i mean yeah the concentration of owls you were saying mm. here is probably second to none yeah i was on South the Africa. phone last night and, and, and the person and i was like what is going because you just hear all these barn owls screaming as they fly <laughs> over my head <laughs> it's great yeah it's quite something it's it's awesome. awesome thanks so much we've both enjoyed this it's been so nice coming out to this part of the world and then seeing the amazing work you guys yeah do. and we'll be looking forward to seeing all your developments this year and next year hope to see the boat yeah watch this yeah. <laughs> yeah, when that boat happens joy and i will come and do a volunteer stint cool. uh, if you'll take us yeah, yeah absolutely. it could be useful i'm sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can you can report live from on board. Yeah. <laughs> Friends, we had an absolute hoot chatting with Danelle. Some amazing stuff they're doing at the Owl Rescue Center and we are fully behind them. If you want to learn more about their work or if you want to jump aboard and support the ship or help an owl out with a donation, click on the links in our show notes. And as always, any questions, comments or suggestions, send us an email at hello at sustainablejungle.com.